Welcome everyone to episode 21 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. We're going to start off this week with a story from YourGhostStories.com. This story is entitled, She Needed Help, and it's written by Unquiet. A few years ago, my family and I traveled to a small beach town on the east coast of Florida for a quick overnight stay. My 14-year-old daughter was volunteering to help with an event, so my husband, myself, and son went along. While searching the internet for a hotel close to the venue, I was intrigued by a charming old motor lodge style motel that appeared to be newly renovated. It was situated on historical highway A1A and built very close to the edge of the two-lane road. On the other side of the highway was a vast expanse of quiet beach on the Atlantic Ocean. You could step out of your motel room door, cross the quaint highway, pass through a small patch of dune, and be on the beach. The website images of the hotel depicted a trendy little establishment. It was not fancy, but appeared clean and appealed to my sense of nostalgia. Upon check-in the evening of our arrival, we were amused to discover that the renovation consisted of spray-painting everything white. As much as I can recall, they painted just about everything except the floors and beds. In the bathroom, they even painted the 50s-style tub, sink, faucet, electrical outlets, shower head, toilet, all window molding, window frames, etc. It was surreal and quite amusing. We laughed about it and then went to dinner. We didn't stay out late nor consumed anything alcoholic as we would have a long, hot day in the sun the next day. Back at the room, we prepared for bed. My daughter and I shared a double bed and my husband and son shared a double right next to us. We all went to sleep quickly and slept soundly for the night. At dawn, I awoke to the sensation of something small and slight jumping onto the foot of my bed. I felt it begin to walk up the length of the bed right next to me. I recall wondering how in the world a cat got into our room. I tried to move and open my eyes, but I couldn't. I've experienced sleep paralysis before in a few instances when traveling, but never to the extent or horror that was about to occur. The cat walked up to my face, sniffed my left ear, I felt it and heard it, sniffed my closed eye, then walked behind my head on the pillow. I could feel the weight of every paw. Then I felt it walk over to my sleeping daughter and then jump to the floor. The next I remember is standing at the foot of the bed in front of a woman who was dripping wet. Her hair was long and hanging in a damp manner on either side of her face. Her clothing was saturated as well. She was pleading, softly, help me, and quietly sobbing. I kept asking her how I could help. We continued this exchange for some time. She gradually became more frantic. Help me was the only thing she would say, over and over. Finally, I said, I can't. Without warning, her face turned menacing as she lunged toward me to grab my hands. She roared, help me. I screamed and jumped backwards to avoid her grasp, then woke up in my bed. I checked on my daughter and she was still asleep, as was the rest of my family. That was the most vivid and realistic sleep paralysis I have ever had. 
Among the few instances prior to this, I would just wake up unable to move. Never had I felt a cat or seen or communicated with anything. If I were the imaginative sort, I am, I would think that maybe this woman drowned in the ocean that was mere feet from the motel. She needed some help and I couldn't help her. I was glad to check out the next morning. And now, from the MysteriousUniverse.com, a story by Paul Seaburn. Mysterious ghost plane parked for years at Spanish Airport. Despite all the complaints about TSA agents checking passengers in the U.S., most airports are very tight about security. That doesn't seem to be the case at one airport in Spain. Or maybe that's just another piece of the mystery surrounding a so-called ghost plane that just appeared there almost a decade ago and has never been picked up or flown since. El Pais reports that the McDonnell Douglas MD-87, a mid-sized, medium-range jetliner, is parked at Adolfo Suarez Barajas Airport in Madrid. This is no puddle-hopper, crop-duster airport. It's the main international airport serving Madrid, the busiest airport in Spain and the largest airport in Europe by physical size. Even with it being big and busy, you'd think that someone would have noticed how it got there. But that doesn't seem to be the case for this one. Elena Mayoral, the current director of the Madrid Barajas Airport, was forced last week to post a notice in the official state gazette that the aircraft with license plate ECKRV is in an obvious state of abandonment, and if it doesn't get picked up, it will be auctioned off. This is obviously not your typical ghost plane. It's a legitimate term used to describe planes where the crew has been incapacitated due to loss of oxygen or other circumstances, or the secret planes allegedly used by governments for extraordinary rendition to transport prisoners to other countries for torture or other illegal activities. In the paranormal world, ghost planes often refer to old military planes flying over World War II battlegrounds, or planes that have landed with no crew on board. ECKRV may not be one of those types of ghost planes, but it's still a mystery. Flight Global reports that Flight Fleet's analyzer lists the aircraft as MSN-49843 and shows it was manufactured in 1990 and initially purchased by Iberia Airlines, which is based at Madrid Barajas Airport. It was sold in 2008 to Pronair, a short-lived charter airline, and then in 2009 to Sykes Air, a cargo carrier which ceased operations in 2010, apparently abandoning the MD-87 and its only other plane, a Boeing 737-300F. Perhaps the real mystery, or at least the first dot in this connect-the-dots puzzle, is what airport official ignored the abandoned plane in the first place. Is it common practice to leave multi-million dollar aircraft sitting around for years at the sixth busiest airport in Europe? Were they afraid to open it? Should they be afraid now? So, this ghost plane sat there for nine years, and could sit there for at least one more. Spanish law dictates that Elena Mayoral must continue to issue notices every three months for up to a year before putting the plane up for auction. A similar MD-87 in working condition is on the market for $4.8 million. This one's motors, pilot static systems, pitot tubes, and other openings have been sealed off, and it hasn't been flown in nine years, but it could still sell for a couple million. 
Who would buy a ghost plane? Someone looking to beat the jinx of the Bermuda Triangle? Fighting ghosts with ghosts? Or is there something more sinister to this mystery? We may have to wait a year to find out. Nobody reads the fine print, but maybe they should. Georgia high school teacher Donalyn Andrews won a $10,000 reward after she closely read the terms and conditions that came with a travel insurance policy she purchased for a trip to England. Squaremouth, a Florida insurance company, had inserted language promising a reward to the first person who emailed the company. From NPR.org a story by Matthew S. Schwartz. When not reading the fine print can cost your soul. We understand most customers don't actually read contracts or documentation when buying something, but we know the importance of doing so, the company said. We created the Top Secret Pays to Read campaign in an effort to highlight the importance of reading policy documentation from start to finish. Not every company is so generous. To demonstrate the importance of reading the fine print, many companies don't give, they take. The mischievous clauses tend to pop up from time to time, usually in cheeky England. In 2017, 22,000 people who signed up for free public Wi-Fi inadvertently agreed to a 1,000 hours of community service, including cleaning toilets and relieving sewer blockages, The Guardian reported. The company, Manchester-based Purple, said it inserted the clause in its agreement to illustrate the lack of customer awareness of what they are signing up for when they access free Wi-Fi. A few years earlier, several Londoners agreed, presumably inadvertently, to give away their oldest child in exchange for Wi-Fi access. Before they could get on the internet, users had to check a box agreeing to assign their first-born child to us for the duration of eternity. According to The Guardian, six people signed up, but the company providing the Wi-Fi said the clause likely wouldn't be enforceable in a court of law. It is contrary to public policy to sell children in return for free services, the company explained. And on April Fool's Day in 2010, British retailer GameStation inserted a new clause into its license agreement with a checkbox already ticked. If the users didn't uncheck the box, they agreed to grant GameStation a non-transferable option to claim, for now and forevermore, your immortal soul. GameStation said that if it chose to exercise the soul transfer, it would serve notice in six-foot-high letters on fire. Luckily, GameStation offered a way to get out of that clause. If you, A, do not believe you have an immortal soul, B, have already given it to another party, or C, do not wish to grant us such a license, please click the link below to nullify this subclause and proceed with your transaction. Those who did click the link were rewarded with a voucher. Other companies simply have fun with their fine print. Most online agreements limit use by children younger than 13, but Tumblr's agreement goes further, anticipating a preteen's pushback. But I'm like almost old enough, you plead. Nope. Sorry. If you're not old enough, don't use Tumblr. Ask your parents for a PlayStation 4 or try books. And in its community guidelines document, after warning that impersonation is not permitted, Tumblr elaborates, While you are free to ridicule, parody, or marvel at the alien beauty of Benedict Cumberbatch, you can't pretend to actually be Benedict Cumberbatch. In section 57.10 of Amazon's AWS agreement, 
People who use Amazon's Lumberyard game development engine promise they won't use it to operate systems that could put someone's life in danger, such as aircraft or autonomous vehicles. So far, so good. Amazon says that section doesn't apply, however, if the U.S. Centers for Disease Control certifies the existence of a widespread viral infection transmitted via bites or contact with bodily fluids that causes human corpses to reanimate and seek to consume living human flesh, blood, brain, or nerve tissue, and is likely to result in the fall of organized civilization. MailChimp is more direct. We won't be held liable for any delays or failure in performance of any part of the service from any cause beyond our control. Such causes may include fires, earthquakes, nuclear accidents, and zombie apocalypse. The Apple iTunes end-user agreement mysteriously contains a clause prohibiting its use to construct weapons of mass destruction. You will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by United States law, including, without limitation, the development, design, manufacture, or production of nuclear, missile, or chemical or biological weapons, the agreement reads. It's unclear how one might use iTunes to construct such weapons. Some have pushed back on onerous terms and conditions that no one reads yet continue to be the legal backbone of the Internet. In an editorial last month, the New York Times criticized what it called the legal fiction of consent, suggesting that people have unwittingly signed away their privacy rights to big internet companies. Americans deserve strong privacy protections, the editorial board wrote. Consent is not enough to replace them. The clicks that pass for consent are uninformed, non-negotiated, and offered in exchange for services that are often necessary for civic life. Before we get to our next story, we do have some items this week in Administrivia Corner. First of all, uh, I failed last week to give proper credit to Sam Hasem, the author who wrote the No Sleep story featured on that episode. Sam has written other works of short fiction as well as a book called The More, and the stuff he makes is really good. So go check out his website, samhasem.com. If you like that story, there's a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to buy a copy of his book, The More. I also saw this week that this show was featured as the daily podcast in the podcasting subreddit, so if you're a listener from there, hello, welcome, and we're glad to have you. Also, a reminder for those who haven't heard it yet, if you are enjoying the show, I'd appreciate you leaving a review on your platform of choice, be that iTunes or Spotify or Podcast Republic or something else. I think I'm on all the major ones. I don't think it helps in the charts, but I do like for people to go to those pages and see that the podcast is alive and active. And finally, thanks again to everyone who has already donated to the show. This podcast is completely independent, meaning that instead of paying one of the big hosting companies, I pay to serve each individual file myself. Your donations help to offset those costs, and I appreciate them a lot. If you'd like to donate, you can currently do that using PayPal or Bitcoin at curse.land slash donate. Thanks again, y'all. Now let's get on with the show. Here's a story from The Morning Call at mcall.com. It's entitled, Dozens of Birds Fall from the Sky Along Route 22, Witnesses and Police Say. This is written by Emily Opilo. You don't have to look far for a sign of the coming apocalypse. 
just checked the median of Route 22. That's where dozens of black birds apparently fell from the sky Friday afternoon, according to state police and multiple witnesses who drove through the area. Terrence Haynes and his wife were driving east on Route 22 Friday when suddenly traffic slowed near the Route 512 exit. At first, it looked like shredded tires scattered all over the road, Haynes said. As they drove closer, it became clear that the black objects were birds. Haynes estimated that there were at least 20. I'm not kidding when I say it was one of the most terrible things I've ever seen, Haynes said Monday. David Godiska of Whitehall came upon a similar scene around 1.45 p.m. while driving east near what he thought was the Fullerton Avenue exit. Traffic slowed suddenly, he said. I thought maybe there was an accident when I saw something fall from the sky, he said. There were some fluttering on the shoulder of the road. I couldn't avoid hitting them, and I thought that is really strange. Godiska estimated that there were dozens of birds. They covered the road and nearby embankments, he said. Godiska then said he saw at least five fall from the sky. Pennsylvania State Police in Bethlehem confirmed that they dispatched a trooper Friday after someone reported the birds. An officer responded to see whether the birds needed to be cleared, but they were not blocking traffic, according to an official who answered the phone in the Bethlehem office. State police counted about 30 birds on the road. No one was injured, police said. State police said it was possible that the birds were hit by a tractor-trailer, but if the birds fell from the sky, it wouldn't be the first time in recent memory. In December, residents in southern New Jersey reported a shower of as many as 200 red-winged blackbirds in a housing development surrounded by farm fields, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported. Three weeks before that incident, a couple dozen dead birds were found in the same neighborhood. Earlier, in 2016, a similar situation was reported in a North Jersey farming area, the Inquirer reported. The New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection conducted tests on the dead birds, but was unable to determine what made them fall from the sky, the newspaper said. It is not known what type of birds were killed in the Lehigh Valley incident. Witnesses and state police described the birds as small and black. Gadiska said the birds were the size of starlings. Past ghost hunting experiences have come back to haunt a man picked by Governor Mike Dunleavy to serve on a compensation board for crime victims. John Francis hasn't shied away from the topic, voluntarily bringing it up during a House hearing last week and calmly fielding pointed questions during a Senate hearing Wednesday. In an interview Thursday, he spoke of a life-changing event in which he felt the soul of a man go through my body. From the Lexington Herald-Leader at Kentucky.com A story by Becky Borer Ghost Hunting Past Haunts Alaska Board Nominee Francis said he was somewhat surprised by how much attention the ghost hunting has gotten. He said he expected more questions on criminal activity he was involved in many years ago, which he said included burglary and insurance fraud though he acknowledged there were time constraints on Wednesday's hearing. During that hearing, Eagle River Republican Senator Laura Reinbold focused on Francis's ghost hunting and his thoughts on the paranormal. She said she's been contacted by people concerned about the matter. If it's just for fun and all make-believe, tell me that. 
If you're serious and there's investigative process and you believe this is real, I want to know that, Reinbold said. I really don't want you to glaze over this because I think this is a real serious concern. Francis, who testified via telephone, explained setting up recorders in people's homes as part of the investigations. He said what is found is almost always explainable and that sharing that provides a measure of comfort for those homeowners. Reinbold asked if Francis believes in paranormal activities. He said he believed Jesus rose from the dead. Reinbold later told him that she would not support his nomination. Francis is the latest Dunleavy nominee to raise eyebrows. A Dunleavy cabinet member resigned after being accused of lying about his business background and a Board of Regents nominee withdrew after facing scrutiny over her social media activity, which included sharing derogatory tweets about former First Lady Michelle Obama and two Muslim congresswomen. A candidate for a judicial conduct commission is drawing questions about a recall effort he faced while serving as a school board president. It's not clear if Francis's ghost hunting activities will be a deal breaker for lawmakers who will decide whether to confirm him to serve on the Violent Crimes Compensation Board. During last week's House hearing, Francis said there was nothing weird or demonic about the ghost hunting group, and he saw it as a way to help people. We do the opposite of what you see on TV, Francis told the Associated Press Thursday. We try to disprove any noise or explain any noise or visuals that somebody might see. He said they would sometimes do cleansings with sage. We don't run around the house with crosses and stuff either, Francis said. He described the ghost hunting group as inactive. Francis believes he would be a good fit for the board. He said he has long since turned his life around and supports victims' rights. He said he has a computer business and has been involved with Facebook groups focused on crime and listing of stolen items. Francis said he had a life-altering experience in the early 1980s when he said he was involved in unsuccessful efforts to revive a man found on a boat. I swear I felt his soul go through my body because I was doing mouth-to-mouth on him. I was closest to his head, he said, adding that it creeped me out. But I'll tell you what, that really changed my life, he said. Prior to that, I felt like other people were just objects, not people. But after that, it just changed everything. Everything. It's often said that second place is the first loser, but at the outhouse races in Anchorage, Alaska, no one wants to be number two. Since 2006, teams have descended upon downtown Anchorage to compete in the annual race hosted by the University of Alaska Anchorage's Architecture and Engineering Club. Although similar races exist around the world, this one is considered the world's largest and was started by the school as a fundraiser for Habitat for Humanity. Each team pays $100 to compete. The event is part of Fur Rondi, the city's two-week winter festival. But while vying to win may be the ultimate goal, it's reaching the starting line that often proves to be the most challenging aspect of the event. From the SmithsonianMag.com, a story by Jennifer Nowicki, Inside the World's Largest Outhouse Race. To even compete in the race, which took place on February 23rd this year, 
Teams of 10 must first construct their outhouses and have them inspected by a race committee to ensure that each one is structurally sound for competition. Bob Maxwell, the AE Club's faculty advisor and adjunct professor in UAA's Facilities Planning and Construction Department, was tasked with giving the inspected outhouses the final green light. Although building an outhouse might seem like a relatively straightforward task, designing one that's mobile and mounted to a pair of skis or a snowboard adds an unusual twist to the competition. Outhouses can be built using any number of materials, Plywood and metal have proven to be popular choices over the years. However, teams have also fashioned shopping carts and water tanks into roving restrooms. Besides skis or a snowboard, teams of five, with one person riding inside the outhouse, can use a rope to pull or push bars to thrust their outhouses simultaneously to the finish line. We also require that each outhouse be equipped with a roll of toilet paper, Maxwell says, and of course, reading material. Racing teams can compete in one of two categories, traditional and unlimited. To comply with traditional specifications, the outhouse must have, at minimum, a 30-inch by 30-inch base and three walls, whereas unlimited outhouses can be as large as 8 feet wide, 12 feet long, and 8 feet tall. During the race, there must be four pushers or pullers and one helmeted rider. This year, more than a dozen teams competed. While many of the teams are made up of university students, members of the community also compete, including students from local middle schools and high schools. We once had a team from Seattle come up two years in a row to race, Maxwell says. And because the race is organized by the AE Club, teams put much care into designing outhouses that are not only easy to maneuver, but also able to stay intact during the competition's multiple heats, which are organized in a bracket system similar to those used during athletic tournaments like March Madness. Everything in racing is about the power-to-weight ratio, so generally the lightest outhouse with the youngest pushers wins, Maxwell says. Teams will take into consideration aerodynamics while building their outhouses. You don't want anything that's too big and clunky. The lighter you can make it, the better, but it still needs to be sturdy to do the job. The weather is another factor teams must take into consideration. While this year's event took place on a sunny, wind-free day on a flat, snow-packed, out-and-back course measuring just 100 feet each way, snowfall or wind gusts can put a wrench into a team's racing strategy regardless of the quality of their outhouse's construction. It's also not uncommon for outhouses to topple over or bump into each other during the race, especially at the turn where they must go around a pylon without hitting it. Teams at this year's event ran the gamut, from competitors dressed up as chickens and pushing an outhouse that resembled a chicken coop, to the defending champs, all members of the AE Club, boasting an outhouse modeled after Snoopy's Red Doghouse. The rider sat on top like the Red Baron. So, who was this year's grand champion? The team representing Anchorage Water and Wastewater Utility, of course. They've been married for 10 years, and for a long time, everything was okay. Swell. But now they argue. Now they argue quite a lot. It's really all the same argument. It has circularity. It is, Ray thinks, like a dog track. When they argue, they're like greyhounds chasing the mechanical rabbit. You go past the same scenery time after time, but you don't see it. You see the rabbit. 
Here's a short story called Premium Harmony, and this is written by Stephen King, THE Stephen King. He thinks it might be different if they'd had kids, but she couldn't. They finally got tested, and that's what the doctor said. It was her problem. A year or so after that, he bought her a dog, a Jack Russell she named Business. She'd spell it for people who asked. She loves that dog, but now they argue anyway. They're going to Walmart for grass seed. They've decided to sell the house. They can't afford to keep it, but Mary says they won't get far until they do something about the plumbing and get the lawn fixed. She says those bald patches make it look shanty Irish. It's because of the drought. It's been a hot summer and there's been no rain to speak of. Ray tells her grass seed won't grow without rain no matter how good it is. He says they should wait. Then another year goes by and we're still here, she says. We can't wait another year, Ray. We'll be bankrupts. When she talks, Biz looks at her from his place on the back seat. Sometimes he looks at Ray when Ray talks, but not always. Mostly he looks at Mary. What do you think, he says. It's going to rain just so you don't have to worry about going bankrupt? We're in it together, in case you forgot, she says. They're driving through Castle Rock now. It's pretty dead. What Ray calls the economy has disappeared from this part of Maine. The Walmart is on the other side of town, near the high school where Ray's a janitor. Walmart has its own stoplight. People joke about it. Pennywise and Pound Foolish, he says. You ever hear that one? A million times. From you. He grunts. He can see the dog in the rearview mirror, watching her. He sort of hates the way Biz does that. It occurs to him that neither of them knows what they're talking about. And pull in at the quick pick, she says. I want to get a kickball for Tally's birthday. Tally is her brother's little girl. Ray supposes that makes her his niece, although he's not sure that's right since all the blood is on Mary's side. They have balls at Walmart, Ray says, and everything's cheaper at Wally World. The ones at Quick Pick are purple. Purple is her favorite color. I can't be sure they'll be purple at Walmart. If there aren't, we'll stop at the Quick Pick on the way back. He feels a great weight pressing down on his head. She'll get her way. She always does on things like this. He sometimes thinks marriage is like a football game and he's quarterback in the underdog team. He has to pick his spots, make short passes. It'll be on the wrong side coming back, she says, as if they're caught in a torrent of city traffic instead of rolling through an almost deserted little town where most of the stores are for sale. I'll just dash in and get the ball and dash right back out. At 200 pounds, Ray thinks, your dashing days are over. They're only 99 cents, she says. Don't be such a pinch penny. Don't be so pound foolish, he thinks. But what he says is, buy me a pack of smokes while you're in there. I'm out. If you quit, we'd have an extra $40 a week, maybe more. He saves up and pays a friend in South Carolina to ship him a dozen cartons at a time. They're $20 a carton cheaper in South Carolina. That's a lot of money, even in this day and age. It's not like he doesn't try to economize. He has told her this before and will again, but what's the point? In one ear and out the other. I used to smoke two packs a day, he says. Now I smoke less than half a pack. Actually, most days he smokes more. She knows it, and Ray knows she knows it. That's marriage after a while. The weight on his head gets a little heavier. Also, he can see Biz still looking at her. 
He feeds the damn dog, and he makes the money that pays for the food, but it's her he's looking at, and Jack Russells are supposed to be smart. He turns into the quick pick. You ought to buy them on Indian Island if you've got to have them, she says. They haven't sold tax-free smokes on the res for ten years, he says. I've told you that, too. You don't listen. He pulls past the gas pumps and parks beside the store. There's no shade. The sun is directly overhead. The car's air conditioner only works a little. They're both sweating. In the back seat, Biz is panting. It makes him look like he's grinning. Well, you ought to quit, Mary says. And you ought to quit those little Debbies, he says. He doesn't want to say this. He knows how sensitive she is about her weight, but out it comes. He can't hold it back. It's a mystery. I don't eat those no more, she says. Any, I mean, any more. Mary, the box is on the top shelf, a 24-pack, behind the flyer. Were you snooping? A flush rises in her cheeks, and he sees how she looked when she was still beautiful. Good-looking, anyway. Everybody said she was good-looking, even his mother, who didn't like her otherwise. I was hunting for the bottle opener, he says. I had a bottle of cream soda, the kind with the old-fashioned cap. Looking for it on the top shelf of the goddamn cupboard. Go in and get the ball, he says, and get me some smokes. Be a sport. Can't you wait until we get home? Can't you even wait that long? You can get the cheap ones, he says. That off-brand, premium harmony, they're called. They taste like homemade shit, but all right, if she'll only shut up about it. Where are you going to smoke, anyway? In the car, I suppose, so I have to breathe it. I'll open the window. I always do. I'll get the ball, then I'll come back. If you still feel you have to spend $4.50 to poison your lungs, you can go in. I'll sit with the baby. Ray hates it when she calls Biz the baby. He's a dog, and he may be as bright as Mary likes to boast when they have company, but he still shits outside and licks where his balls used to be. Buy a few Twinkies while you're at it, he tells her. Or maybe they're having a special on Ho-Ho's. You're so mean, she says. She gets out of the car and slams the door. He's parked too close to the concrete cube of a building and she has to sidle until she's past the trunk of the car and he knows, she knows, he's looking at her. Seeing how she's now so big, she has to sidle. He knows she thinks he parked close to the building on purpose to make her sidle and maybe he did. Well, Biz, old buddy, it's just you and me. Biz lies down on the back seat and closes his eyes. He may stand up on his back paws and shuffle around for a few seconds when Mary puts on a record and tells him to dance, and if she tells him in a jolly voice that he's a bad boy, he may go into the corner and sit facing the wall. But he still shits outside. He sits there and she doesn't come out. Ray opens the glove compartment. He paws through the rat's nest of papers, looking for some cigarettes he might have forgotten, but there aren't any. He does find a hostess snowball still in its wrapper. He pokes it, as stiff as a corpse. It's got to be a thousand years old. Maybe older. Maybe it came over on the ark. Everybody has his poison, he says. He unwraps the snowball and tosses it into the back seat. You want that, Biz? Biz snarks the snowball in two bites. He then sets to work licking up bits of coconut off the seat. Mary would pitch a bitch, but Mary's not here. Ray looks at the gas gauge and sees it's down to half. He could turn off the motor and roll down the windows, but then he'd really bake. Sitting here in the sun, waiting for her to buy a purple plastic kickball for 99 cents when 
he knows they could get one for 79 cents at Walmart. Only that one might be yellow or red, not good enough for Tally, only purple for the princess. He sits there and Mary doesn't come back. Christ on a pony, he says. Cool air trickles from the vents. He thinks again about turning off the engine, saving some gas, and then thinks, fuck it, she won't weaken and bring him the smokes either. Not even the cheap off-brand. This he knows. He had to make that remark about the little Debbies. He sees a young woman in the rearview mirror. She's jogging toward the car. She's even heavier than Mary. Great big tits shuffle back and forth under her blue smock. Biz sees her coming and starts to bark. Ray cracks the window an inch or two. Are you with the blonde-haired woman who just came in? She your wife? She puffs the words. Her face shines with sweat. Yes, she wanted a ball for our niece. Well, something's wrong with her. She fell down. She's unconscious. Mr. Ghost thinks she might have had a heart attack. He called 911. You better come. Ray locks the car and follows her into the store. It's cold inside. Mary is lying on the floor with her legs spread and her arms at her sides. She's next to a wire cylinder full of kickballs. The sign over the wire cylinder says hot fun in the summertime. Her eyes are closed. She might be sleeping there on the linoleum. Three people are standing over her. One is a dark-skinned man in khaki pants and a white shirt. A name tag on the pocket of his shirt says Mr. Ghosh, manager. The other two are customers. One is a thin old man without much hair. He's in his 70s at least. The other is a fat woman. She's fatter than Mary. Fatter than the girl in the blue smock, too. Ray thinks, by rights, she's the one who should be lying on the floor. Sir, are you this lady's husband? Mr. Ghosh asks. Yes, Ray says. That doesn't seem to be enough. Yes, I am. I'm sorry to say, but I think she might be dead, Mr. Ghosh says. I gave the artificial respiration and the mouth-to-mouth, but... Ray thinks of the dark-skinned man putting his mouth on Mary's. French kissing her, sort of. Breathing down her throat right next to the wire cylinder full of plastic kickballs. Then he kneels down. Mary, he says. Mary, like he's trying to wake her up after a hard night. She doesn't appear to be breathing, but you can't always tell. He puts his ear by her mouth and hears nothing. He feels air on his skin, but that's probably just the air conditioning. This gentleman called 911, the fat woman says. She's holding a bag of bugles. Mary, Ray says, louder this time, but he can't quite bring himself to shout, not down on his knees with people standing around. He looks up and says apologetically, She never gets sick. She's healthy as a horse. You never know, the old man says. He shakes his head. She just fell down, the young woman in the blue smock says. Not a word. Did she grab her chest? The fat woman with the bugles asks. I don't know, the young woman says. I guess not. Not that I saw. She just fell down. There's a rack of souvenir t-shirts near the kickballs. They say things like, My parents were treated like royalty in Castle Rock and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Mr. Ghosh takes one and says, Would you like me to cover her face, sir? God, no, Ray says, startled. She might only be unconscious. We're not doctors. Past Mr. Ghosh, he sees three kids, teenagers, looking in the window. One has a cell phone. He's using it to take a picture. Mr. Ghosh follows Ray's look and rushes at the door, flapping his hands. You kids get out of here. You kids get out. 
laughing, the teenagers shuffle backward, then turn and jog past the gas pumps to the sidewalk. Beyond them, the nearly deserted downtown shimmers. A car goes by, pulsing rap. To Ray, the bass sounds like Mary's stolen heartbeat. Where's the ambulance, the old man says. How come it's not here yet? Ray kneels by his wife while the time goes by. His back hurts and his knees hurt, but if he gets up, he'll look like a spectator. The ambulance turns out to be a Chevy Suburban painted white with orange stripes. The red jackpot lights are flashing. Castle County Rescue is printed across the front, only backward so you can read it in your rearview mirror. The two men who come in are dressed in white. They look like waiters. One pushes an oxygen tank on a dolly. It's a green tank with an American flag decal on it. Sorry, he says, just cleared a car accident over in Oxford. The other one sees Mary lying on the floor. Oh, gee, he says. Ray can't believe it. Is she still alive, he asks. Is she just unconscious? If she is, you better give her oxygen or she'll have brain damage. Mr. Ghosh shakes his head. The young woman in the blue smock starts to cry. Ray wants to ask her what she's crying about, then knows. She's made up a whole story about him from what he just said. Why, if he came back in a week or so and played his cards right, she might toss him a mercy fuck. Not that he would, but he sees that maybe he could, if he wanted to. Mary's eyes don't react to the ophthalmoscope. One EMT listens to her non-existent heartbeat, and the other takes her non-existent blood pressure. It goes on like that for a while. The teenagers come back with some of their friends. Other people, too. Ray guesses they're being drawn by the flashing red lights on top of the Suburban the way bugs are drawn to a porch light. Mr. Ghosh takes another run at him, flapping his arms. They back away again. Then, when Mr. Ghosh returns to the circle around Mary and Ray, they come back. One of the EMTs says to Ray, She was your wife? Right. Well, sir, I'm sorry to say that she's dead. Mary, mother of God the fat lady with the bugles says she crosses herself oh Ray stands up his knees crack they told me she was Mr. Ghosh offers one of the EMTs the souvenir t-shirt to put over Mary's face but the EMT shakes his head and goes outside he tells the little crowd that there's nothing to see as if anyone's going to believe a dead woman on the quick pick floor isn't interesting the EMT yanks a gurney from the back of the rescue vehicle He does it with a single flip of the wrist. The legs fold down all by themselves. The old man with the thinning hair holds the door open and the EMT pulls his rolling deathbed inside. Whew, hot, the EMT says, wiping his forehead. You may want to turn away for this part, sir, the other one says, but Ray watches as they lift her onto the gurney. A sheet has been tucked down at the end of it. They pull it up all the way until it's over her face. Now, Mary looks like a corpse in a movie. They roll her out into the heat. This time, the fat woman with the bugles holds the door for him. The crowd has retreated to the sidewalk. There must be three dozen people standing in the unrelieved August sunshine. When Mary is stored, the EMTs come back. One is holding a clipboard. He asks Ray about 25 questions. Ray can answer all but the one about her age. Then he remembers she's three years younger than he is and tells him 35. We're going to take her to St. Stevie's, the EMT with the clipboard says. You can follow us if you don't know where that is. I know, 
Ray says. What, do you want to do an autopsy? Cut her up? The girl in the blue smock gives a gasp. Mr. Ghosh puts his arm around her and she puts her face against his white shirt. Ray wonders if Mr. Ghosh is fucking her. He hopes not. Not because of Mr. Ghosh's brown skin, but because he's got to be twice her age. Well, that's not our decision, the EMT says, but probably not. She didn't die unattended. I'll say, the woman with the bugles interjects. And it's pretty clearly a heart attack. You can probably have her released to the mortuary almost immediately. Mortuary. An hour ago, they were in the car, arguing. I don't have a mortuary, Ray says. Not a mortuary, a burial plot, nothing. What the hell? She's 35. The two EMTs exchange a look. Mr. Burkett, there'll be someone to help you with all that at St. Stevie's. Don't worry about it. The EMT wagon pulls out with the lights still flashing but the siren off. The crowd on the sidewalk starts to break up. The counter girl, the old man, the fat woman, and Mr. Ghosh look at Ray as though he's someone special. A celebrity. She wanted a purple kickball for our niece, he says. She's having a birthday. She'll be eight. Her name is Talia. Tally for short. She was named after an actress. Mr. Ghosh takes a purple kickball from the wire rack and holds it out to Ray in both hands. On the house, he says. Thank you, sir, Ray says, trying to sound equally solemn, and the woman with the bugles bursts into tears. Mary, mother of God, she says. She likes that one. They stand around for a while, talking. Mr. Ghosh gets sodas from the cooler. These are also on the house. They drink their sodas and Ray tells them a few things about Mary. He tells them how she made a quilt that took third prize at the Castle County Fair. That was in 02, or maybe 03. That's so sad, the woman with the bugles says. She's opened them and shared them around. They eat and drink. My wife went in her sleep, the old man with the thinning hair says. She just laid down on the sofa and never woke up. We were married 37 years. I always expected I'd go first, but that's not the way the good Lord wanted it. I can still see her laying there on the sofa. Finally, Ray runs out of things to tell him, and they run out of things to tell him. Customers are coming in again. Mr. Ghosh waits on some, and the woman in the blue smock waits on others. Then the fat woman says she really has to go. She gives Ray a kiss on the cheek before she does. Now you need to see to your business, Mr. Burkett, she tells him. Her tone is both reprimanding and flirtatious. He looks at the clock over the counter. It's the kind with a beer advertisement on it. Almost two hours have gone by since Mary went silent between the car and the cinder block side of the quick pick, and for the first time, he thinks of biz. When he opens the door, heat rushes out at him, and when he puts his hand on the steering wheel to lean in, he pulls it back with a cry. It's got to be 130 in there. Biz is dead on his back. His eyes are milky. His tongue is protruding from the side of his mouth. Ray can see the wink of his teeth. There are little bits of coconut caught in his whiskers. That shouldn't be funny, but it is. Not funny enough to laugh at, but funny. Biz, old buddy, he says. I'm sorry. I forgot you were in here. Great sadness and amusement sweep over him as he looks at the baked Jack Russell. That anything so sad should be funny is just a crying shame. Well, you're with her now, ain't you? He says. 
and this is so sad that he begins to cry. It's a hard storm. While he's crying, it comes to him that now he can smoke all he wants, and anywhere in the house. He can smoke right there at her dining room table. You're with her now, Biz, he says again through his tears. His voice is clogged and thick. It's a relief to sound just right for the situation. Poor old Mary. Poor old Biz. Damn it all. Still crying, and with the purple kickball still tucked under his arm, he goes back into the quick pick. He tells Mr. Ghosh he forgot to get cigarettes. He thinks maybe Mr. Ghosh will give him a pack of premium harmonies on the house as well, but Mr. Ghosh's generosity doesn't stretch that far. Ray smokes all the way to the hospital, with the windows shut and the air conditioning on. That concludes episode 21 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>